मानव का जीवन मिला धर्म मिला अनमोल अब श्रद्धा से यत्न से Before we get into today's show, I just want to add a quick reminder that any donation given to our nonprofit Better Burma will be shared directly with those in Myanmar who need it most. Any and all donations make such a difference right now. Go to insightmyanmar.org/donation if you would like to contribute or stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear more options. With that, let's get on to the show. मन की गांठें खूल pleased to be talking to Tamara Edwards. She is the center manager at Dhammapaba. That's in that's a uh, of a passionate center in the Goenka tradition in Hobart, Tasmania in Australia. And uh, we met in Australia as well as Myanmar and have a chance to reflect on some of the experiences going to meditate and be in some of the monastic environments in Myanmar. So Tamara, thanks so much for joining us here. Thank you Joa it's a really a pleasure to be speaking with you again. Yeah so um some hard times right now in Myanmar obviously we're all following them closely but the nature of this conversation is to balance some of that heaviness and reflect on some of the warmer memories and the appreciation the gratitude that so many of us have of spending time in the country as well as the influences of the country. So can you give us a bit about your background and how you got into uh, the passion of meditation and how that eventually brought you to Myanmar? Mm, yeah, sure. Um well it's not a very exciting story. I think the passion was just like for many people I guess something that I was just destined to do, but I'd never done any prior um meditation at all and never imagined myself to do so. And I ended up traveling in India in the late 90s and um not to not necessarily on a spiritual quest um but ended up meeting a woman from New Zealand there actually who has remained a very close friend of mine to this day and she just come off a course it was new year's eve and we were staying in a hotel in Gujarat and she just come off a course at Manly and uh told me then uh, for the first time about vipassana and serend 
serendipitously enough, we continued to meet up in random places on our travels and I finally ended up staying with her in Nepal. Her husband was going off to do his first course in Kathmandu and um, I suddenly decided there and then that I needed to go off and do that course as well. But unfortunately, my travel plans had already been made and I was to fly back to India before the course ended. So I ended up spending the two weeks there with her, learning more about Vipassana and feeling very strongly that it was something I needed to do. And she said, oh, well, look, don't worry. There's uh, centres in Australia and um, you'll find one in Melbourne. So I I returned home and ended up doing my first course in uh, at Dhammaraloka in Melbourne and haven't looked back. Oh, that's great. What what years was that that you were in India and then took your first course? Um, I well, I was I met this friend in about 1998 and mm. didn't end up taking my first course a few until a few years later in 2001. Oh, that was my first course as well, July two thousand one in Japan. Yeah, and oh, I was really? I was I was living in Japan, and I I also was alternating between do I take it in Japan or do I take it in India because I was just taking my first trip to India, uh-huh. and I had a six week break from school because I was teaching at the time. So I ended up taking of those six weeks, I took the first two weeks taking a course at Damabanu in uh, outside of Kyoto, Japan. And uh-huh. then um, um, as soon as that course ended, then flew to India for the first time and then had the following four weeks in, in India with that um, quite a uh, quite quite a, a change transformation that was, mm. uh, was bringing me there after that first experience. So Absolutely. Um, yes, India pre-Vipassana and post-Vipassana are two very different experiences. I'm sure, and I never knew it um, pre-Vipassana yeah, because yeah, uh, yeah. I, I knew it uh, literally days after Vipassana. So. Yeah, yeah, wow. um, and uh, and I should I should meant, I should correct myself. I I think I referred to you as the center manager currently. Just to correct that, you're the center teacher at um, at the at the Vipassana Center in Tasmania. Uh, going on with your story and just jumping to your from your first course, I assume you could become more actively involved and mm. and uh, and are taking more courses and be involved in the community. Fast forward to when you decided to go to Myanmar and what what drove mm. you to want to go there and your first impressions upon landing and, and starting to uh, mm. to spend some time in the country. Yeah, well, I first very nearly went to Myanmar in two thousand and. Six, I'd hmm. been long-term serving at Dharmagiri in in India, hmm. and um, it was known amongst meditators there that Goenkaji's sons had connections with the um, with being able to connect uh, meditators with visas to Myanmar, and so I very nearly um, spontaneously applied for a visa to go to Myanmar. However, my original plans after leaving Dharmagiri were to do the actual Buddha Yatra throughout India. And so I decided to keep to my plans very reluctantly. I had a very strong pull then to want to go to Myanmar for obvious reasons, but I did end up doing the Yatra instead. Um, And then it wasn't for another six years later, and my husband and I had been living in New Zealand for some time, and um, we'd taken both of us two years off the Dharma long-term service 
um, lifestyle to earn some more money in his hometown in New Zealand. And we ended mm. up getting quite involved with the community and felt that we'd strayed somewhat from our true path and decided at that point that we wanted to return to full-time Dharma sitting and serving and thought, well, the best way to do that would be to finally fulfil both of our dreams and go and sit a long course in Burma. So we first travelled together to to Burma in late 2012 to sit a 30-day course at Dhamma Nidhi. Hmm. Right. So your first experience of being in Burma was was being whisked into a 30-day course. And then did you, uh, after the course, did you have much time to explore the country? Well, actually, we joined the last yatra that the, the Vipassana Yatra that they held in Burma before Goenkaji died. Mm. So we went straight to um, Dharma Jyoti in Yangon and um, and set off on the Yatra from there, um, you know, attended a few venues in Yangon with Goenkaji. And, of course, that was um, the year before he died. So it was uh, – that were some of his last public appearances, which were very inspiring. Um, yeah, so then set off on the Yatra. And I guess this is the interesting part because we joined the Yatra, we left Yangon, the Yatra went up into the far north, Mandalay, and of course all the respective areas related to our tradition. And we were at the Ledi Sayadaw Monastery in Monua and um, Jamie and I decided at that point that we wanted to leave the Yatra and go to Injinbin. <laughs> yeah. We'd heard some things about Injun Bin, but we didn't know an awful lot about it, just that it was, of course, the Wibu Siador uh, Monastery and decided that that's where we needed to be. Um, so we did that. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and we're very grateful we did because um, we've continued to return to Injun Bin for the following five, five trips we made to Myanmar after that. Mm, that's great. I think our paths were crisscrossing then, even if we didn't know it. I, I was, um, I, I was at Shui Min Monastery at the time during that yatra, but I came into the city uh, to to see his talk in National Theater, mm, and mm. Uh, and then also went down to Siathaji's village when they were visiting there, yeah, and okay. uh, and and was just present there. And then, but the really interesting thing is that I'd have to check the dates. I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was right around mm. that time mm. that I ended up in Indian been with with Uaga, a, a friend who's a Dutch ah, monk, and yeah. uh, this what's now become kind of like an infamous, I would call it an amateur documentary of Webu Seida, kind of an accidental documentary, was uh, was made there, and that that was where we, uh, uh, the and that's actually the the thing that set off on everything I've been doing since kind of accidentally we 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 were at, we, we were at Injin Bin um, around that time and. Uh, somehow Umandala had been given a scanner um, and we had no idea why he had it. He didn't really know mm-hmm. why he had it. But mm-hmm. we thought, well, let's scan all these old pictures, these archival pictures of Webu Sayada, and just be able to preserve them in some way and share them with, with communities outside. And that scanning project turned into like, well, why don't we make a slideshow instead mm-hmm. of a, um, you know, just... Uh, uh, just putting them in a file, and then the slideshow became. Well, why don't we? We could put. We have this chanting. We have this bit of discourse. We have here's an archival like World War II footage from Burma that fits in with, you know, mm-hmm. the, the events we're trying to tell, and it became this kind of six week 
um, I would call it amateur documentary that uh, mm. that uh, that started everything I've done since then. So so just a, a kind of crisscrossing your timeline. So anyway, I don't mean to take the spot, spotlight. You you're on your pilgrimage and you um, you veer off the pilgrimage to you're, you're drawn to Injin Bin. And so what was mm. that experience like? What it, how did how did you feel coming to the monastery and how did you spend your time there? Oh, it was incredible, really, from beginning to end. We um, didn't even really know how to get there. We'd been told if we go to went to Schwebo, we'd be able to get a taxi, motorcycle taxi, out to Injinbin because apparently then that was the only way to get there. And um, we ended up meeting a, 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 an absolutely delightful young local man when we arrived at the hotel there, and um, he quickly established that we were Vipassana meditators and he'd only just self-taught himself uh, enough English to have, you know, a reasonable conversation with us and and then, of course, offered to take us out. Um, he, he had my husband on the back of his motorbike and he got his wife to put me on the back of her motorbike and, and they mm. took, us, took us out to Injin Bin and, and introduced us to Umandala. And our friendship, um, you know, has has remained with that young man to this day. I don't know if you mm. know um, Ku, uh, Ku Chaukse, I think. So we arrived at Injin Bin and met Umandala. And of course, as everyone knows, he completely welcomed and embraced us into um, his monastery there. And we were only able to stay for three days, um, mm. but they were they were the first of very many, you know, amazing days Um with our time, our time at Injin Bin with Umandala, mm, and of all the places you went to in Myanmar, not not just uh, the normal tourist places, but places that are that are steeped in meditation history, and some of the great sayadas and, and mm-hmm. meditation teachers have been. Injin Bin was one that not just pulled you to want to come, but when you were actually mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. it uh, it seemed to even fulfill you and give you more than even what you were anticipating. So, what what was it specifically about about that site that that um, that you found so compelling and so so powerful to want to come mm-hmm. back and keep spending time? Yeah, well, I have to say that it was the Patipati Monastery, of course. Um, you know, being within the grounds of the Patipati Monastery, I always said and say to this day, um, felt like the most peaceful place on earth, mm. which, of course, you know, many would find hard to believe in the current climes. But stepping inside that monastery, we would spend obviously many hours a day meditating in Webu Seador's Kuti and um, it just, I guess, whether it was simply the presence of a past Arahant having lived there, but, um, you know, I said used to say to my husband all the time, my goodness, if, you know, there were anywhere I could spend the rest of my days, it would be here. So it was mm. just a feel, feeling that was is very hard to describe, mm. but I'm sure anyone who's been there will know that feeling. Mm-hmm. And of course, we developed a very close relationship with Amandala over the times too. So we would always stay with him, and um, but spend our our days in the Paddy Paddy grounds meditating. Right, and I think that also just really speaks to the generosity of spirit. Just the uh, those two examples, a microcosm of that. The 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 young man in the Schwebo Hotel that personally as a strangers personally takes you uh, to this remote monastery and then mm-hmm. Umandala initially again as a stranger just welcoming you with open arms and, and caring for you and just uh, just a display of how how welcoming and inviting and and really unconditional giving you find uh, especially as a meditator and going there. 
Well, Umandala always said to us that he felt that it was his mission to welcome Western meditators to his monastery because, of course, the Webu Seador had given the prophecy uh, that, uh, you know, busloads of Western tourists would, would come in the future. And so he foresaw our arrival and um, many other meditators. And of course, as the years progressed, many more meditators continued to come to the monastery. And he saw that as a fulfillment of the Webu Seador's prophecy. <laughs> Mm, yeah, yeah, of course. It's it, it, it's been great seeing that on the map more and more. Actually, for the meditators guidebook we wrote, we went and tracked down the probably most most probably the the first Western meditator that visited Injin Bin um, and, and put it on the map. I mean, aside from a few that were there during Webusayda's time, and that mm -hmm. was Luke Matthews, a, a teacher in Canada, and mm -hmm. he told me in quite a bit of detail the, the that they had some vague understanding of where it was and just the trials and tribulations of actually getting there is such an adventure, you mm -hmm. know, so, mm -hmm. so, so difficult. And so whatever kind of difficulties we all have in trying to get there or track it down, you know, it's just funny looking back on the recent history of, um, of, uh, of when it was truly off the map and really was almost like a mythology, almost like, you know, it's, it's somewhere around this X, but I have no idea where, and I don't know who to ask and I don't know how to get there. And, uh, and, and then once he found it and started sharing to a few more people mm. and a few more people, and it got a bit more firmly on the map for all of us. Mm, yeah. Although I, I know now, you know, when you enter Kenu and start to travel towards Injin Bin, you see that, uh, that pagoda spire in the distance rising up through the palm trees. And it, mm. you know, it's, it's a very prominent landmark. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Almost yeah, a Yes, yeah, 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 mm -hmm. absolutely. And so then in your time, you keep going back to Myanmar, you keep going back to this very remote village that most Burmese have, have probably never heard of, let alone been to, and mm -hmm. spending more and more time there. And eventually you make a decision on one visit to ordain as a nun. So tell us a bit about that. Yes, of course. So uh, as an assistant teacher at that time in the tradition of uh, going Vipassana, I, um, I asked my teacher if it would be okay if I ordained temporarily. And he, I was, of course, given permission. And so, well, <laughs> I mean, before, in my early years of Vipassana, um, my goal was to ordain. <laughs> I think I've always had the, or the mm -hmm. monastic sankara, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, I ended up becoming, um, you know, marrying my husband. And, um, but I guess the seed of m monasticism has always been there. So it just felt so right to fulfill that aspiration with Umandala at the Injin Bin Monastery. And um, the first, I actually ordained twice. So the first time was for three weeks. And then a couple of years later, it was for five weeks. So just for mm. short stints. But um, mm -hmm. they were truly, truly amazing, amazing times. Mm. And how did, did you find differences between uh, doing the meditation as uh, doing the practice as mm. a, a nun wearing robes in Myanmar versus being a, a lay practitioner? Was there uh, a difference in those two con when you were contrasting those two different experiences? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even though 
meditators in Myanmar, meditator yogis in Myanmar are, are supported and, and highly respected by the local Burmese people. I mean, there's a significant difference between being a tourist in Myanmar and being a yogi in Myanmar alone. Um, you're recognised as such and supported greatly by the people for practising meditation. But then to take robes was a whole new level altogether because I found that as meditators, as lay meditators, you know, we're aiming to develop our practice to uh, be able to develop wisdom towards ultimate reality um, rather so much as apparent reality. And then I found as a nun that it was almost expected that we live into the ultimate reality. You know the tra- the monastic tradition in Myanmar that you know the monastics are not considered as well termed as people. They're they're noble ones, and they're right. treated they're treated to support them to live into that ultimate reality, the ultimate reality of anatta anicca. And so I felt that that expectancy almost not to identify myself in the apparent reality, rather in the ultimate reality, um, it strengthened my scope of practice. I mean, we have that opportunity when we sit long courses in the, well, 10 days, of course, and long courses in the Vipassana tradition. And I would still say that sitting long courses in the Vipassana tradition um, is definitely for me, you know, the ultimate way to live into that ultimate reality because still as a nun, um, of course, you know, you have your uh, your daily responsibilities. But nonetheless, it was um, a profound inner experience, a very personal experience, I guess, that is hard to describe. Mm, right. And uh, that's looking at like contrasting the the actual experiences of meditation, just sitting down on the cushion wearing one set of clothing versus another, and the way that actually impacts the practice. Zooming out a little bit and looking at the wider scope of, of the environments, you came from the Vipassana Center, which is a uh, more of a, a, a which is a lay organization and more geared mm-hmm. towards towards lay life and I would say modern life as well. Mm. Although it's obviously predicated on not just monastic culture, but specifically Burmese monastic culture. I, I would I would say where it came mm. out of, mm. and you you went from being a part more of the lay organization and and that culture to a Burmese monastic environment, and then back again. And you actually went back and forth and back and forth several times. So mm-hmm. what what did you find as in that journey going back and forth from one to the other where the, the Dhamma is present in both, uh, the ultimate goal is really the same, the method for practicing and the the, the, the ideology and the, the, the same set of beliefs are there, um, and yet there, there's also very extraordinary differences between them as well and how they're constructed. So being able to go back and forth in both and be uh, be somewhat comfortable, I imagine, in both as well in terms of integrating, but but integrating mm. in different ways. What did you find as those, um, those differences and similarities uh, between those two sets of environments? Yeah, well, I guess primarily as, uh, um, you know, as a, as a wife, um, my husband was incredibly supportive. Uh, he, he was actually my copier, you know, mm. um, because I, I took the 10 precepts not to handle money as well. So, um, you know, he was doing that side of things for me and, and supported me greatly in the role. I mean, of course, obviously, because it was uh, temporary. 
We had both spoken. Um, it was interesting to note, actually, that um, after that first trip in 2012, we had both carefully considered ordaining prior to uh, returning home. And um, we returned back to New Zealand and it was at that point that the centre teacher there actually asked us to become ATs. So <laughs> our life very, very mm. nearly took a completely different pass, mm-hmm. path. Um, but we felt that it was our, you know, it was our role, I guess, in this life to to serve the Dharma in the way that we have since together as ATs, um, and that it's that this is the time to to pr- help propagate and spread dharma in this way, and that perhaps we you know do both have you know have had lifetimes as monastics, but um, in this life we were to come together and and serve in this capacity together. And so after my second ordination, I felt like I'd done what I I needed to do um, since. Since disrobing after the second ordination, I I knew then that I wouldn't be doing it again in this life, Mm -hmm. Um, that that I'd I'd fulfilled some need within me that needed to be fulfilled and and very happily closed that that experience in my life. Mm, Right. And... Looking at the actual uh, the, the 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 places themselves that uh, you could say the the culture the the organizations of going from a a lay meditation center to a Burmese monastic environment how would you contrast like the simil- the, the similarities between them and the differences and the adjustments that had to be made in moving back and forth yeah none at all I would say actually hmm. because um, you know Burmese monasteries are very accommodating and at least the ones we stayed in were quite happy for us to practice as we liked when we liked um, you know we were free to come and go and do our own thing we certainly didn't take teachings from the the Seattles there and um, so we would basically keep the course time to daily timetable while we were staying at monasteries and and meditate and take meals at the usual times because monastic meal times pretty are pretty much the same as as course mm. meal times so because we'd been spending well you know the following years we continued to live our entire life serving um centers full time we actually didn't have a our own householder's life, so to speak, outside of a centre. We moved from centre to centre around New Zealand and Australia and basically sat and served long term. Um, So (laughs) the two environments were very similar and it didn't take much adapting Mm -hmm. at all for us because we continued to just do the same thing at the monasteries that we would normally do at a centre anyway. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, coming from that monastic experience and the overall experience in Myanmar as a meditator, and then going back into the going of a passionate tradition, were there specific lessons or or things that you learned or gained from Myanmar that you found yourself applying or or acting out naturally that that you can you can look at as you know, before you came to Myanmar, even as, even as a meditator, you weren't quite grasping it or 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 internalizing it to the same depth and then after you had those experiences became more a part of your your practice or your life um i think just being truly inspired and truly grateful for the lineage of teachers and to really it 
it was very enriching engaging with the the Seadors that that we spent time with. I think it was, you know, on the one hand, they got to learn more about um, what it m- meant for a Western meditator in the Goenkaji tradition to be in Burma, equally as much as it was for us to learn deeply where our tradition had had come from. Um, but overall, you know, I can speak for my husband, Jamie, as well. We, we just felt like we knew Myanmar. It didn't seem like a foreign place to us, to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, we felt completely at home there. We felt completely um, familiar with um, with both monastic and, and lay life in, in Myanmar. And um, other than taking the inspiration that we gained from spending time there back to the West and back to uh, life in centres in the West, um, you know, it, it only enriched our experience. Mm-hmm, right. Is there any particular anecdote uh, or experience that stands out from your time in Myanmar that uh, you might like to share here? Well, <laughs> I'm sure a lot. <laughs> a lot to choose I, have from. To, I have to say that uh, I, I think one of the highlights, uh, I was in robes at the time too, actually, and we had developed a friendship with uh, Aga. Um, we sat long courses with him, or at least one 45-day course with him in Burma. And we uh, it was on our one of our last trips, I think it was actually our last trip to Myanmar, and we contacted Aga to find out where he was and how he was. And he was spending time on his six-month retreat down in the south of uh, Myanmar, uh, south of Dawe. And we'd never gone into, you know, the, the far south of Burma. And he, mm. invi- he invited us down to the monastery um, where he was spending his retreat down there, um, a true forest monastery. So um, we travelled, uh, took a 15, uh, horrendous 15-hour bus ride mm. from Yangon down to where he was staying and ended up spending um, about two weeks down there uh, he had his own kuti in the in the forest, and he there were two empty kutis there. So Jamie stayed in one, and I stayed in another. And we had to walk half an hour, I think twenty minutes, half an hour through the forest down to the monastery to collect our our arms, our food each day, and mm-hmm. walk back up into the forest. And we we all set a a Satipatthana self-course there together in, in our respective kutis. And um, as I say, I was in, in robes at the time. And I have to say that's probably, you know, one of the most beautiful things that that we've we've done in Burma. Mm, that, that's that's beautiful imagery that you, you present of of down there. And I, I also haven't been there, but I, I was aware when he went and he uh, regaled me with uh, all sorts of stories from his experiences as well. Um, but what, um, aside from how you've already described it and that the, the, the evocative imagery, what, what made it stand out uh, so profoundly among all the other experiences you had? What, what was so special about that particular memory and that particular self-course? I think it was the isolation and the uh, the opportunity to really practice as a forest monastic because, mm, as I say, as right. a monastic in some of the bigger monasteries, it was a very social affair, to be honest. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. even though we were meditating so many hours a day, we hadn't, we were still um, 
speaking and integrating with people and of course that was expected you know so um and of course there were always other meditators coming and going and it was it was a very social affair but the experience down there was full immersion into forest monasticism you know we were I was completely isolated in my kuti as as Aga and Jamie were um, you know, we uh, there was no electricity, there was no running water. We had to collect our own water from the river, and that sense of isolation for me personally is just heaven. <laughs> mm. <laughs> to really, really, you know, I always feel like I'm just kind of having a go at at, at <laughs> things in other monasteries, but there's always the distractions and mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, as strong as that underlying um, energy is in those monasteries, but this was a this was a true, uh, although short, short, um, but true uh, forest living experience, and and of course we were sitting a self course, so there was silence and and absolutely no interaction with others, and also being in robes and having, mm. uh, you know, we would walk walk down um, in a you know, walk down in a line together, Uaga first and then me and Jamie behind and silently collect our arms. I'd never had the opportunity before to collect arms, of course, mm. as, as, an, as a nun at the other monasteries. Mm-hmm. We would join mealtimes with everyone else and sit down and talk and then carry on. But, you know, this way I was actually receiving arms in, in and, um, you know, taking them back to the cootie to eat in silence. And um, so that was an experience like none other. Uh, of course, you know, once again, the, the sitting courses in the Vipassana tradition and, and, and particularly long courses um, give you that opportunity entirely. But I got that plus robes. <laughs> Right, and also in in, in a forest, uh, in basically a forest. on your own. So, I yeah. mean, this is really hearkening back to the yeah. actual days of the Buddha, where you know it's very hard to live like this today. But you're you're actually modeling a life there that's not all that different from from how you hear in some of those early stories of uh, from uh, of, of the Buddha's own life and his Entirely. teachings and his followers. Hmm. Entirely. In fact, there was one experience. Um, the middle of one night where I woke to the strangest sound <laughs> I can't describe and I still don't know what it was. It was hmm. not an animal and it was not a person, <laughs> but it was <laughs> a, a, a very strange wailing sound and I was unnerved to the point where I almost thought about <laughs> running and grabbing my husband <laughs> in mm. the cootie a few hundred mm-hmm. metres away. However, I decided to sit and and play the Tikapatana. <laughs> but I mm. imagine, and, and of course the sound died away and, and the feeling of being threatened in any way died with that too. And I imagine that, you know, and I was grateful for that experience because I imagine that, you know, the, the monks of old meditating in forests would have had to have encountered those sorts of experiences right. all the time. It's really amazing to have those living experiences, especially when you have a knowledge of some of the stories. It reminds me of mm. um, many years ago when I was at Seataji Center and sitting a self course by myself, and I was I was alone in the center at night, um, just sitting. 
And I think I was hearing something scattering uh, around, and I, I assumed it was a, a rat or a mouse, and was getting a bit unnerved as uh, you know the how close the sound was and where it was coming and if it would come to me. And because I had been reading some of Syatiji's biography and history. I recall the story of where at that very same place, uh, in, in, in that very same building, uh, an mm. episode where Sayataji was sitting, and as, um, as one knows that center, and as one knows just Burmese architecture in general and how houses are built, that you have um, you know, the, the, the floor of many of the huts can be several feet off the ground. And, uh, and, or you could even have like a, a, the floor and then below the floor, you have some rafters below that. And so as he's sitting, he looks down, uh, under his crossed legs and, and through the rafters of the floor and he sees this giant snake that's curled up (laughs) and immediately has this fear of being bitten by the snake, but then Mm. has this realization of wisdom coming with it that whatever, whatever kind of, of fear, terror, or, or danger that the snake could possibly give by biting was in no way comparable to the fear and the danger of all the past lifetimes and, and all mm. of samsara and the danger mm. of samsara and and uh, and the sense of samvega awoke, uh, awoke in him, samvega being mm. this um, yeah. kind of um, uh, f- falling away of the uh, a, a disinterest in the world mm. for seeing the um, what samsara really is and mm. that had him ardently return to a sitting practice and so this memory reminded me that in this very same place where I'm getting a little mm. concerned about rats or, or mice, um, <laughs> there's a snake under Sayataji, you know, in, in this very same building where I am now 100 years ago. And just that, bringing that story to mind just made this kind of firmer resolution. And I think that that kind of, I don't know if you can call it uh, adventure dhamma or real life dhamma or, or just, just something, you know, the meditation centers are wonderful in the kind of focus and isolation they provide. But to be able to have that training and then go and apply it in a more dynamic situation situation uh, where where things happen that are unusual or unexpected that can just be a whole different uh, experience in on, on on the spiritual path of meditation for sure absolutely yeah you know as you say the comfort of a meditation center pr- provides right. a lot of security whereas you know when you're out there in the jungle uh, there's other <laughs> other mm. things that strengthen your practice as well. <laughs> mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so moving on to looking at the past year, of course, the coup that happened last year, the military coup in Myanmar on February 1st, and it's just been so devastating for Burmese everywhere, for friends of the country, for uh, expats who've lived there, and certainly for the meditator-practitioner community, uh, including those who have lived there, those who have visited there, and even those that have never even been but are just beneficiaries of a of a Burmese lineage like Cuenca or like so many others um, to uh, to realize this uh, this devastation going on in a country that has just given so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's been your feeling? How have you been following the events going on and responding and and, and how have you been working with it? Mm-hmm. Well, when it first happened, uh, um, I was almost obsessed with what was going on. I felt like uh, it was a way of perhaps 
I, I guess like all of us, I felt so helpless, you know, that there was absolutely nothing we could do, but I, could, I couldn't turn away from it. And so I was watching everything that happened there and, 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 and even, you know, the horrifying footage that was coming out of it because I felt like it was a responsibility to, uh, it was just, yeah, I guess a way of escaping the feeling of helplessness. But I became so devastated and truly so distraught that I actually had to pull back from doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess reach out to uh, the expat Burmese that, um, friends that, that I have living in Australia and abroad and, and trying to, to support them in in any way um but really overall just a sense of absolute i mean you can imagine the gamut of emotions we've all felt them but you know still to this day i feel Hmm. such a sense of um helplessness i guess yeah and it's it's really even in this conversation it's such a contrast to go from these beautiful warm lessons mm-hmm. that are not just nestled in nonviolence but are nestled in the ultimate peace and liberation and non-harm mm-hmm. to all beings mm-hmm. to go from that kind of conversation to a a uh, to to looking at just uh, horrors of uh, possible genocides mm-hmm. and crimes against humanity and this is mm-hmm. happening and this is all happening in the same place to the same people it can mm-hmm. kind of defy imagination in a way it does exactly yeah hmm. so as the time has gone on and and, and there was this initial shock how um and you, you mentioned following the news very carefully and then having to pull back a bit how, how have you learned to live with it or how have you learned to moderate your practice and your engagement and to find that balance mm, yeah well you know, I have to sit with those feelings when they occur, of course, and extending the, the the merits and the benefits of our own peaceful lives here in Australia to the people in Burma through Meta. Um, I know of not many other ways to really provide support from, from so far, but if time and space... Uh, I, I don't think time and space matters so much. You can be very close to people um, in meditation. And so I try to extend my support through my practice of metta um, and, of course, in any other material way that I possibly can. Mm. Right. I think that's all that that all of us are trying to do no matter where our our walk of life is. And that's also why I think discussions like this are important. I I think equally important is to be informed and bear witness, even uh, Mm. those very painful things that could Mm. could even even bring us some kind of trauma or nightmare, even Mm. being in a place of safety learning, but just as a responsibility to not turn away. Uh, But I think those stories are important, but equally important are knowing that uh, I think that that Myanmar has always mm-hmm. um, been, at least from what I've seen, it's it's run the, the the risk of being portrayed as this one-dimensional place and outside news and coverage. And so I think stories like this really help to remind just how vibrant and alive uh, and giving so much of the society is and that it's not just a place where bad things happen. It's so much more uh, than that. Absolutely, absolutely. And you, you can't really know that unless you've been there. 
Mm, right, and not just been there, but but in the case of you and so many others, have been exposed to these certain parts of the society that, that many tourists and expats don't. So getting that that uh, getting that real that that much richer and more authentic view of how at least some of the people live. It's a very obviously there's a lot of ethnicities mm. and religions and cultures that are there. Um, Buddhism is just one of them, um, mm. but uh, for those that have experienced um, um, Bamar Buddhism or other types of Buddhism as a as a practitioner, that's uh, it's it's definitely something that uh, that stays with one. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join and share these experiences. They're really heartwarming and wonderful to keep in mind, especially at a time like this. Thank you, Joa, and continue the good work you're doing um you know it's 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 a wonderful thing <laughs> thanks for joining us for today's episode being a small mostly volunteer team our production time for a single episode before the coup was sometimes as long as four months from start to finish. While we had worked at decreasing the lead time, the fastest we were ever able to manage was just around three weeks. Yet during this current crisis, where even a single day's event can produce such shocking news and urgent needs, we simply don't have this luxury of time. So we've worked around the clock to substantially shorten the length of our production cycle. The turnaround for some episodes now has been just 36 hours. However, we can't accomplish this goal without your support. If you found value in today's episode and think that others may also benefit from this type of content, please consider making a donation so that we can continue our mission. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts, or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.